and uh, we thank you that you are sovereign over our lives. And, and uh, Lord, uh, thank you for the family, the family of God. And Lord, as we consider the text and, and what it means to really be a member of the family and the accountability that's involved in being a part of the family, I pray that you would minister to each one of our hearts this morning. Commit our study to you now. Thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you note uh, the outline. We have worked our way through uh, the theme is Christ the King, and we have come, come down to the section in chapters 17 through 20, uh, the instructions of the King. Matthew 18 is the fourth of five discourses in the book of Matthew. And this discourse of Matthew 18 emphasizes how Christ's kingdom people should then live with an emphasis on humility. The disciples, you see, had been arguing over who would be greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus emphasized that kingdom values are really all about humility. The way into the kingdom is through humbling yourself in saving faith. And then key to kingdom greatness is humility that thinks about others instead of promoting yourself. Well, Jesus then warned of the seriousness of being a stumbling block to believers and then went on to emphasize the importance of seeking to restore sheep that wander. In Matthew 18, 12 through 14, as we noted last week, he told a parable to illustrate this very thing. We now come to the section dealing with church discipline. And we need to keep in mind that it should be understood in light of the preceding parable that emphasized seeking out one sheep that had gone astray, with the point being that it's not the Father's will that even one believer should be given over to spiritual destruction. God wants every effort to be made to keep his children from spiritual harm. And part of that effort involves loving people enough to hold them accountable and to seek to restore them when they wander off track spiritually. God seeks to carry out his will largely through his people. And this is true even in the matter of correction. The matter of church discipline, if properly applied, and sadly, it's not always properly applied, but if it is properly applied, is dealing with the human counterpart of divine love in action. This passage in Matthew 18, 15 through 20 deals with how a wayward believer is to be brought back into the fold. Now, discipline is not my favorite topic in the world. And as far as dealing with church discipline, honestly, it's my least favorite part of being in the ministry. But it is necessary. The goal in discipline is always restoration. It's always about the spiritual good of the errant believer and also the good of the entire flock. And it is to be motivated by true love. But it's never fun. And honestly, I would never choose to teach on this on Father's Day, except for in the providence of God, here's where we are in the book of Matthew. So in a lot of ways, it is appropriate. But uh, note this. Hebrews 12, 11 says, Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. 
Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline properly motivated by love and properly carried out is a manifestation of love. Now, isn't it crazy how sinful rebellion calls tough love hate? And the world is very quick to call God-loving Christians haters simply because they insist on living according to God's standards. We live in a world where good is called evil and where evil is called good. And the Bible word for that is perversion. The idea of twisted backwards. Here in Isaiah chapter 5, we read, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. And this is where human thinking takes you. It's the wisdom of the world, the values according to the community of the world. It's backwards. They're wise in their own eyes. They're fools in in accordance with God's truth. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. But that's where we are in society. Everything is backwards and inside out, which is certainly where they're at on the matter of love and discipline. And the more we coddle people from cradle to grave with no discipline, the worse it gets. And I wonder why. In Proverbs, we read, I'm going to read, maybe. There we go. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. If we really love people, if we really care about them, then we will seek to graciously but firmly correct them. And I might add, in humility. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. There is never a holier than thou. There should not be a holier than thou attitude. But we do this for their ultimate good. But it's also for the good of the entire body of Christ. You see, Corinth had some serious sin going on in the body. And they really gloried in the fact that they were such a gracious church, such a tolerant church. But Paul, in correction, said this. 1 Corinthians 5, 6, your glorying is not good. The fact that you're not dealing with it. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Sin not dealt with in the body does not get better. It spreads. It's like a cancer that must be dealt with or it will kill the body. Nobody likes to deal with cancer. But it must be dealt with. So with the background warning of not being a stumbling block and the importance of restoring a fellow believer... With that background, we now come to Matthew 18, 15 through 20. And we pick it up at verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. Now, in view here is a brother, a fellow professor in Christ, professing believer in Christ, 
This clearly, by the word brother, denotes an in-family matter. We share the same father. We're part of the same family. Now, we would like to think that brothers would never sin against each other. But alas, we do. In fact, in the context of body life, Peter says love will cover a multitude of sins. Now, here in Matthew 18, verse 15, some manuscripts have sins against you, emphasizing a personal sin committed against someone. And some manuscripts just say, if your brother sins, leaving it generic, meaning any sin. But Peter's follow-up question in verse 21 would indicate that indeed personal sin against someone is probably in view in this context. Certainly, it seems the disciples understood it that way. Okay. Uh, Matthew 18, 21. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me? And I forgive him. Up to seven times. And, of course, that leads into the long parable that concludes the chapter. The word sin means to miss the mark. It means to miss the mark of God's standards. This refers to something that is clearly wrong according to God's word, such as lying, stealing, whatever it might be. This is not simply a matter of getting your feelings hurt or having disagreement over personal preferences. No, this is something that clearly violates the word of God in the sinful wrong, wrongdoing towards another person. This is objective reality, not merely subjective feelings. Now, in the immediate context, Jesus has just emphasized that it is wrong to despise any believer, no matter their status. To despise someone is to belittle them and treat them with contempt. Now, in the eyes of God, that is a very serious sin. And in context, a potential stumbling block. So in context, sinning against a brother would certainly include despising a fellow brother and thus being a stumbling block. Note it is the person who has been wrong that should take the initiative here to confront the wrongdoer. He should not get someone else to do it, right? You know, don't hire a hitman. <laughs> don't get somebody else to do your dirty work. Uh, no, he should take the initiative. Uh, we need to love enough to personally confront when necessary. And this is not easy. But it is according to Christ's instructions. It is according to true love and for the ultimate good of the other person. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So you deal with this in private. Don't call the prayer warriors. Don't tell anyone else. Just go privately to the person. It starts there. Remember, the goal is to restore the brother with the least amount of trauma possible as seen through the lens of the parable in verses 12 through 14. Now, it's amazing how much extra trouble we can cause by involving a whole bunch of other people instead of just going directly to the person and dealing with it on a private level. Volumes of trouble would be spared if we would just follow this simple guideline 
as outlined here by Christ. Now, sometimes people have a critical spirit, and they talk to everyone but the person they are critical of. Always in confidence, of course. One pastor came up with an ingenious way of dealing with this, and this is shared by Joe Barnett, and so I relay his story. This pastor kept on his desk what he called a complaint book. When a member of the body would come to him with the faults of another, he would open up this book and say, Well, here is my complaint book. I'll write down what you say, and you can sign your name to it, and then I'll take it up with our brother. (laughs) Invariably, the critic would stammer, backtrack, and insist that nothing be written or signed. In his 40-year ministry, that preacher opened his complaint book hundreds of times, but never made a single entry. Well, that makes the point that it's much easier to go and complain to someone else rather than directly going to the person. What Jesus doesn't say, first go and talk to the pastor, even if he has a complaint book. Rather, he says to go directly to the person privately. And if the person refuses to do that, I suggest he shouldn't go anywhere. When Jesus says, what Jesus says here assumes that indeed the person has legitimately been sinned against, sinfully wronged. Now, if upon confronting him, he hears, he listens, and responds positively, that is appropriately, by admitting his wrong and getting right, well, then you've gained your brother, Jesus says. And this is the goal. The goal is to restore things back to where we have unbroken fellowship. To gain means to prevent the loss of. The sense is to keep him in the fellowship and not lose him in that sense. Restoration is always the goal. Step one is to confront in private. If the brother refuses to repent, proceed to step two, as seen in verse 16. Verse 16 says, but if he will not hear, not going to listen, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. If the sinning brother won't listen, you take one or two witnesses with you to confront him with his sin. And the purpose for this is to officially establish the case. Now, in the Old Testament, any serious case was established in the mouth of two or three witnesses. And that precedent then carries over into the New Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15 says, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. Jump forward to the New Testament, and Paul, dealing with a very troubled Corinthian church, had all kinds of issues, says, This will be the third time I am coming to you. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. The bringing in of witnesses further establishes the case. Now again, it's here assumed that the sinning brother is guilty. But the use of witnesses would serve to establish either guilt or innocence. Now if one does not have witnesses to carry the case forward, then it should not proceed. These witnesses would have opportunity to hear the case, hear the case firsthand, and either confirm innocence or guilt. Now, again, the assumption here is that the brother is guilty of sin. 
The case is being established in a very credible way in keeping with biblical jurisprudence. Verse 17. And if he refuses to hear them, so he's not listening to anybody up to this point, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Now, if the sinning brother refuses to listen, uh, the witness's next step, this is step three, is to bring it to the church. At this point, the entire church becomes involved in an effort to restore the sinning brother. Now, this is God seeking to restore a fallen brother through the agency of his people. Now, only the Gospel of Matthew directly mentions the church. The first mention of the church is found back in chapter 16, verse 18, where Christ said he would build his church, future tense, on the rock truth that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. This refers to the universal church consisting of all believers in the church age from the day of Pentecost uh, until the rapture of the church, which is the completion of the church. The second reference to the church is found right here in Matthew 18, 17, where it refers to a local church context. Thus, these two references to the church in Matthew form a pair, if you will, of bookends. The first referring to the universal aspect of the church, and the second referring to the local aspect of the church, the local church. Well, as we proceed beyond the Gospels, the church becomes the big idea. It's what God is doing in the world today. He's building his church. The word church is found 114 times in the New Testament, with 90 of those occurrences referring to the local church. It is essentially in the context of the local church that God carries out his work in the church age. It's in the local church that we have God-ordained leadership. It's in the local church that we have accountability, as seen here in Matthew 18, 17. It's in the local church that we have the use of spiritual gifts being emphasized. It's in conjunction with the local church that we are not to neglect the assembling of ourselves together. It's in the local church that we are to stir up love and good works. It's in relation to the local church that we have a host of one another emphases in the New Testament. I cannot imagine God saying on Judgment Day, the believer's judgment, well done to anyone in the church age who was not totally sold out to the local church. I mean, it's what God is doing. It's the, it's the big idea in this, the church age. To miss out on the local church is to completely miss the point of God's activity in the world today. And yet for so many, the local church is not a priority. It's merely an optional add-on. I mean, if it happens to be convenient. Now, it is true that the Greek word ekklesia, meaning church, by itself simply means called out ones. Referring to an assembly, just generally, an an assembly. However, there are strong reasons to believe that Jesus here has the future local church in view. As the thought continues into verses 18 through 20, it becomes clear that what Jesus is saying applies to the time in the future when he will be absent from them. In verse 20, Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in his name, he is present there in their midst. That clearly refers to a spiritual reality, which would be in place after he had physically gone back to heaven, after the inauguration of the church age. Well, that brings us to the fourth step of church discipline, as outlined by Christ. 
Again, not my teaching really. It's Christ's teaching here. If the sinning brother won't listen to the church, then he is to be treated like a heathen or a tax collector. The idea of a heathen is a Gentile. Now understand the historic context in which uh, we're talking about at this point. We talk about, you know, interpreting the Bible uh, grammatically, uh, contextually, historically. Historically. Uh, Matthew is written to Jews with the Jewish frame of mind in view. The Jews, you see, had no social dealings with Gentiles or tax collectors. I mean, that was just the general way the Jews carried on. If at all possible, they would avoid them. In John chapter 4, verse 9, we see, Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask drink from me? A Samaritan woman. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. This is how they typically carried on. Now, if there was anyone more despised in the eyes of the average Jew than a Gentile, it would have been a tax collector. Because, you see, the tax collectors tended to be Jews in the Jewish context who worked for Rome, and therefore they were considered apostate traitors, which the Jews would have nothing to do with. So Jesus is illustrating his point with this language, emphasizing at this point the action of excommunication, the breaking of fellowship. This is the last resort. This is the final step of tough love. So note the four steps, as outlined by Jesus, of church discipline. Number one, confront privately. Number two, confront with one or two other witnesses. Number three, bring it before the church. And number four, a complete break in fellowship. Now, the fourth step seems severe especially in today's Christian world where discipline is pretty rare. I mean discipline on all, on all levels, in the home, in the church, anywhere. Society, they don't even have it in the dictionary anymore, it seems. It seems like the Christian world wants no accountability, which goes right along with they will not endure sound doctrine. It seems severe until you look at what Jesus said about how serious it is to be a stumbling block to one of his little ones who are believers. Then it seems pretty consistent. And this is not the only place where this level of discipline is called for in the New Testament. Paul spoke in these very same terms in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And we read there, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 11, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet, I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of the world. He's not talking about the world. He's talking about the church. Or with covetous, extortioners, idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who calls himself a Christian, who is sexually immoral, covetous, idolater, reviler, drunkard, or an extortioner. Not even to eat with such a person. God's family is to be a holy family. And open flagrant sin is not to be tolerated. There is to be accountability. There are holy standards in God's family called the church. You see, you can't just hang out here corrupting the whole group with sinful compromise. It's not to be tolerated. 
Now, it is interesting to note that in the phrase, let him be to you, the you is not plural, but singular. Moody Bible Commentary makes this observation. Jesus was personalizing the instruction, making the responsibility for restoration and discipline binding upon every individual in Jesus' community, not just the leaders. By their action, the church shows they do not condone the sinful behavior and cannot have fellowship with it. However, the action is not punitive, but rather corrective in nature. As soon as the person repents, he should be received back into fellowship publicly, just as he has been excommunicated publicly. And there's a reason for the very strong follow-up message on forgiveness as seen at the end of the chapter. It's not like, well, yeah, remember, remember, no remembering. You know, apart from the great, we're no better, remember? Humility, that's the theme that drives this whole thing. Apart from the grace of God, there go I. Man, I can get on my high horse with all those pastors who have fallen into sin. But I'll tell you, but for the grace of God, there go I. Uh, I am one step away from falling myself. Humble humility is to drive everything. So when somebody falls, the goal is restoration, not to beat you for a while until we're satisfied. No, the goal is repentance and restoration. And then we go on as fellow strugglers in in the travel. When you look at all that the New Testament has to say about breaking fellowship with a fellow believer who is in sin, you could summarize the following reasons for doing so. And so we might call this uh, the basis uh, of church discipline. And uh, I get this uh, from uh, Don Whitney, who summarizes the issues pretty good here. Christian love is violated by serious personal offenses. That's what we're talking about in our text here today. Christian unity is violated by those who form factions and destroy the peace of the church. Sometimes we're very hesitant to to apply discipline in those conditions. Even though a brother is causing major disruption, no sin here. We, We don't want to deal with that. Christian law is violated by those living scandalous lives. And then Christian truth is violated by those who reject essential doctrines of the faith. Pretty good summary. You know, this is not an oblique reference. I mean, the New Testament is pretty strong in emphasizing this throughout. In 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, Paul writes, We command you, not a suggestion, we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition. Tradition here means truth handed down. Tradition literally means that which is handed down. Truth handed down from God by the apostles, which he received from us. Somebody's out of line with the apostles' teaching? Uh, Withdraw. We command you, withdraw. You say, that doesn't seem very loving. It seems very biblical. 2 Thessalonians 3.14 And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. The idea is to bring conviction. Now, the early church took the instructions of Christ about church discipline seriously. And we see the apostles applying them in their writings. 
J.L. Dagg said, when discipline leaves a church, Christ goes with it. An unholy church is not pleasing to Christ. Love, 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 love. No discipline, that's not love. Oh, worldly definition. That's the world's definition of love. You're on the wrong page. You need to get on Jesus' page. There must be discipline where there is flagrant sin. Someone has said that historically there are three marks to the true church. Number one, the preaching of the gospel. Number two, the observance of the ordinances. And number three, the practice of church discipline. What does that say, by the way, about the American church? If this is really kind of what defines the church. And discipline goes right along with an insistence on holiness. Well, step four ends the church's responsibility. At this point, there is nothing more for the church to do. However, that's not the end of the story. When a person is excommunicated, Paul indicates that they, in effect, are put out into Satan's territory. And the spiritual protection afforded them in the church family is removed. We see in the book of Job that God had a hedge of protection around Job, which Satan wanted God to remove so that he could have his way with him. I believe there is this kind of hedge in the fellowship of God's people. You see, God has put certain protections in. He's put rails to to protect us from going off the road. Part of that is leadership in the church. Part of that is accountability in the church. And even unbelievers who are closely connected with God's people are blessed in a close relationship with God's people, such as when an unbeliever is married to a believer. They receive certain blessings from being in that relationship. But notice uh, here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, dealing with a flagrant sinful matter at Corinth, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together, this is a church event, along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. The realm of Satan is the realm of pain and death. In this context, the devil has special liberty to inflict this person in various ways that may end in death if the person does not repent. In 1 Timothy, like I say, all over the New Testament here, 1 Timothy 1.20, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme, Boy, when you're out in Satan's realm here without the hedge of protection, boy, it, it gets ugly. Look at, what, look at Job and his experience. 1 John 5, 16. If anyone sees his brother, it's a brother problem, his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death, which is sin that is repented of. But he says there is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. I mean, what do you pray about? I mean, this person refuses to repent. He's on a course. Comes a point. It's going to be, it's going to be. James chapter 5, verse 19. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, that's 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 the goal of church discipline. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the air of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. 
You see, it's a serious matter to claim to belong to God and be a part of his holy family. It seems pretty consistent that at the start of every special era, God drives the point home that to be in relationship with him is a most serious matter, a matter of holiness. And God must be reverenced in the life or you could die. Let me give you some examples. Sage of grace, we get pretty cocky, pretty bold sometimes in our sin. Thank you. (laughs) In Moses' day, when the children of Israel were just getting established as the covenant people of God, we have the example of Nadab and Abihu. We read in Leviticus chapter 10, Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. I mean, they're just pretty bold here in, in their worship. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them. And they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. I mean, these are his sons. Can't argue with this. In the days of Joshua, when the people were just getting into the position of taking the land, we have the example of Achan who took the forbidden spoils, contrary to the clear command of God. And we read in Joshua chapter 7, verse 25, And Joshua said, he's talking to to Achan, Why have you troubled us? I mean, your sin is causing trouble for the the whole community. The Lord will trouble you this day. So all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. You say, well, 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 that's, thankfully, that's Old Testament. Yeah, it is. Is God less holy in the New Testament than he was in the Old Testament? No. Actually, at the start of the church age, we have the example of Ananias and Sapphira, who lied about their giving. We're not going to take personal testimonies this morning on your giving. Acts chapter 5. Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart? Like you're responsible personally for this. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down. Breathe his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. You know, that has a way of purifying the church. No one wants to join uh, this kind of church lest they die. Someone says, well, we don't see that today. Well, that may be true to some extent. Remember, in every era, it seems that God makes the point at the beginning, but then intends for that to be a learning reference point. Going forward, the deadly seriousness of it remains. Warren Wiersbe says, God may not kill every hypocrite in the church today, but hypocrisy certainly helps kill the church. Peter says, as God's children, we should be obedient children, quote, obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, 1 Peter 1.14. 
But there is such a thing as being a disobedient child. And it can have deadly consequences. I believe that church discipline is intended by God to be a form of grace in which God uses his people to seek to turn an errant child of God from sin. But if the sinning believer refuses to repent, it can get really ugly as they are put out into the realm of Satan, which may very well end in death if they don't repent. It is deadly serious, this matter of holiness. A believer may try to outrun God, sort of like Jonah, you know. When's the next ship leaving, can I ask? I'd like one ticket, one way, please. Yeah, they may try to outrun God, sort of like Jonah, but like running from church to church. But in truth, one cannot outrun God. Running from proper church discipline is like running from the mercy of God that is afforded through the church. In Hebrews 12, it says that God disciplines all of his children. If a person is without discipline, it just proves that they are illegitimate and not truly saved. God is a very responsible heavenly father. And he does not let his children get away with sin. If a sinning believer won't submit to properly ordained church discipline, then God directly gets involved. And that can get deadly serious in a hurry. A footnote here. Some time ago, D.A. Carson publicly rebuked uh, the compromised emergent church movement and some of their leaders. Well, he was resoundingly criticized for doing so, saying he should first have dealt with these people privately. His response was that very public sin by very public people needs to be addressed publicly. Public error calls for public correction. I think he's right in this. I think we see this, for example, in Paul dealing with very public sin at Corinth without going through all the steps of formal church discipline. Verse 18, Jesus says, Surely I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, as a freshman in Bible college, I one time asked a visiting speaker at a local church what verses 18 through 20 mean. And he told me, I'm a freshman, I'm, I'm, I'm green, I'm, I'm a fairly new Christian. But he told me that he thought it had to do with church discipline. And I looked at him like, where did you get that? What I failed to realize and what he failed to tell me is that he was looking at the immediate context, which is key to proper interpretation and understanding. You see, this is before I learned to think about every verse in context. This is before I learned that a text without a context is a pretext. In the matter of proper interpretation, context is king. This verse is not just an open name it and claim it check on whatever you want. No, verse 18 is linked with the previous context related to church discipline. And a very literal translation, I think, I think the best translation I've run across, is found in the New American Standard. And, here, and here's how it would read. Take my word for it. There we go. Uh, Matthew 18, 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. 
The sense here is that the binding and loosening on earth is what has already been determined in heaven. What happens on earth is simply the affirmation of heaven's decree. The action on earth aligns with heaven, and therefore it's binding. God works through his people insofar as they align with his will. In 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know, and we know that he hears us. Whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. When the prayers and actions of God's people align with heaven, it's binding. And the same truth applies to loosening if the person repents. This, too, is ratified by God. You see, the church has no authority on its own to decide what is sin or its consequences. We simply act in accord with the positions already established in heaven. Note the verse says, whatever, not whoever you shall bind or loose. This shows we are holding people accountable for their actions, but we're not the ultimate judge of the person's heart. This is God's domain and his alone. What the church does is simply ratify what heaven has determined in keeping with the revealed will of God through the word. Verse 19. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Again, this is not talking about two believers claiming just anything. Rather, this is two believers agreeing on a matter of discipline in accordance with God's will as revealed in the word. When that aligns, God answers prayer because it is his will. The Holman Christian Standard Bible says, a common but mistaken interpretation holds that these verses promise that God will do whatever two or more believers ask. This violates the context. It'd be nice if there was some kind of buzzer that went off. When I, you, know, you hear a teacher on, on the radio, on the television, and he's taking it out of context. <laughs> context violator. No. Uh, this violates the context. There is a clear connection with the immediate preceding discussion about restoring a sinning disciple. Verses 18 and 19 relate the restoration disciplinary actions of Jesus' disciples on earth to the decisions of the Father in heaven. The word again at the beginning of verse 19 suggests that this verse restates the principle of verse 18. So God works through his people as they pray. God works through prayer. But it is prayer that aligns with his will. As has often been said, the purpose of prayer is not to get our will done in heaven, but to get God's will done on earth. How true that is. Moody Bible Commentary again. Anything literally is any matter or any affair, that is, any circumstance requiring church discipline. That's the context. Verse 20, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. It doesn't matter how small the church, and there are many places in the world where the assembly of believers is very small. John MacArthur says, Jewish tradition required at least 10 men to constitute a synagogue or even hold public prayer. Here Christ promised to be present in the midst of an even smaller flock. 
Two or three witnesses gathered in his name for the purpose of discipline. Now, the sense is that when discipline is properly carried out in conjunction with two or three bona fide witnesses, that Christ is there involved in the action, which makes it binding. We do this in conjunction with Jesus Christ, his personal presence. He's there. He's involved. And we see the sense of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which I've already noted. But notice there. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan. This is all done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and enacted by his power. To do something in Jesus' name means it is done according to his will, for his purposes, his benefit. This has ultimately Christ's program involved in view. Now, the gathering in, in Matthew 18.20 is for the purpose of Christ, and the discipline being dealt with is according to his will. In such a case, Christ promises to be present, saying, I am there in the midst of them. Revelation says that Christ walks in the midst of the churches. His spiritual presence is here, and any official binding and loosening is according to his directive. We do this in conjunction with Christ. We do not act alone. Now, God alone is the ultimate judge. Part of being God is that he is the judge of all. He's the creator of all, and he's the judge of all. Part of being God means that he's the judge. Now, in Psalm 82, God calls the judges gods with a small g. And the reason for this is because judging is a God-like activity. All human judges are not God. But they act for God in judicial matters. This is a solemn, God-like responsibility. The God's people now share in the judging of sin in the midst of his people. We are the body of Christ, carrying out the work of Christ. And yes, God can directly intervene anywhere he wants to, but he largely works through his people. That's his plan. People often say, thou shalt not judge. Well, you know what? There's a verse that says thou shalt judge. How about that? Which one should we go with? May we want to consider the context in each case. 1 Corinthians 5, 12 and 13. For what have I have to do with judging those also who are outside, outside the fold, outside the family of God? that's not the place for Christians. You know, who are we to hold the world accountable? And the world, sometimes we act like that's our role, but that's not. But he says, do you not judge those who are inside? And the expected answer is yes. But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. We don't hold the world accountable. But in the holy family of God... We are to hold each other accountable in keeping with love and holiness. And in that judging responsibility, Christ stands with his people, as seen here in Matthew 18, 20. Now, so often when it comes to the issue of sin, God's people don't want to deal with it. Frankly, I would rather not deal with it. It's easier just to sweep it under the carpet, pretend it isn't a problem, or just hope it goes away. But that's not true love. It doesn't help the person, and it's not healthy for the body. 
James McConley shares this story. A visitor to Switzerland went hiking and stumbled onto a shepherd's fold. The shepherd and his flock seemed content, except for one sheep, which was resting on a pile of straw. This animal seemed to be in pain. The hiker quickly saw that his leg was broken and asked, how did it happen? The shepherd said, I broke that sheep's leg. A look of pain and puzzlement etched the visitor's face. The shepherd said, of all the sheep in my flock, this one was the most wayward. It would never obey my voice. It would never follow where I was leading the flock. It wandered to the edges of cliffs. And not only was it disobedient itself, it was always leading the other sheep of my flock astray. I had experience before with sheep of this kind, so I broke its leg. When I first went to it with food, it tried to bite me. I left it alone for a couple days. Then I went back to it, and it not only took the food, it licked my hand and showed every sign of submission and even affection. And now let me tell you something. When this sheep is well, as it soon will be, it will be the model sheep of my flock. No sheep will hear my voice as quickly. None will follow me as closely. Instead of leading the other sheep astray, it will now be an example and a guide for the wayward ones. It will lead them to obey my call. Actually, a complete transformation will have come into the life of this wayward sheep. It will have learned obedience through its sufferings. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God help us to understand and respond accordingly. Let's stand and have our closing song.